Griner Talks about sustainability and transformation. A Griner podcast episode. How to change? How to create a sustainable future? That's what we are discussing here. My name is Alexander. I'm part of the sustainability team at Griner, and my guest today is someone who I wanted to speak to for a long time. There's not many people on this planet who have made an impact on politics and the environment like him. He's an opinion leader, an author, and an expert on sustainable development. Already at the age of 26, he became a member of the Swedish parliament, and that was only the start of an incredible career. Among many other functions, he served as Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations, and for more than 10 years, he has been a member of the European Parliament. Also, he's the honorary president of the infamous think tank, the Club of Rome. Thanks for taking your time, Anders Wiekmann. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Anders, uh, you have had many positions in your life, and I assume you have lived in quite a few countries, but right now you are in Stockholm, if I'm correct. Yes, and I've, I've lived most of my life in Sweden, as a matter of fact. But I had a stint in New York when I was with the United Nations Development Program. And I also lived part of my time in Brussels during the years in the European Parliament. And then I had also 10 years in the International Red Cross. And then I was very often in Geneva and traveling around the world. So, so I've seen a lot of the world, yeah. And is that city, Stockholm, still closest to your heart? Well, I don't know if it's closest. It's close to my heart. There are other cities in the world that are very beautiful as well. But Stockholm is a wonderful city, absolutely. Anders, we wanted to talk about sustainability, about the environment today, about planetary boundaries. But at the moment, there is also a terrible war going on in Europe. And I believe that you can't really talk about sustainability, talk about the future without addressing that. So for the first time in more than 20 years, there is a major armed conflict taking place on our continent. And since you have enormous knowledge in politics and international development, can you explain to us in a nutshell what is happening here right now? I don't think anyone can really explain, at least not why it's happening. We can see what is happening, of course. A lot of destruction, a lot of killing and atrocities being uh, imposed on Ukraine. And then you can only speculate why uh, Putin is doing this aggression. There are many theories about it, some more, uh, <laughs> some more factual than others, I guess. But it's terrible. And it shows us that uh, what we believed was behind us, uh, large-scale fighting and war in, in Europe, is here again. And uh, there seems to be no way we can prevent this from happening on and on again in history. And you have mentioned we believe that this was behind us. Have you ever thought this would be possible again in the 21st century? No, not really in, in this continent. But uh, I think we were a bit naive. I think when you look at history, you have this kind of very authoritarian, aggressive uh, leaders on and on again, sort of popping up. And, and Putin is one of, of those. Um, you can always discuss if this could have been prevented. Some people say that NATO shouldn't have uh, enlarged, not brought in the East European countries. But I, I think that it was not 
primarily innate to that sort of uh, obliged them to become members. It was really their wish to become members because they didn't trust Russia. And, and that's, a, that's important to not forget. But I guess maybe in the 1990s, the Western countries could have uh, established a much better cooperation with the then government of Yeltsin. I think there are some lessons to be learned. I think there was a lot of arrogance in, in the West. We have won. Now our system is the only one possible. And here we are again. So uh, we should have done more to establish a cooperation that would last and that wouldn't um, enable somebody like Putin to start this type of aggression again. But it's easy to say in hindsight. Anders, you have held one of the highest positions in this world. You were the Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations, actually during the time of the Yugoslav War. Do you think that the international community is doing enough to end this war that is going on right now? No, and I'm quite um, sad about one thing. My country, Sweden, we... The, the parliament took a decision that we should apply for membership in NATO. The same did the Finnish parliament a couple of days ago. And now all debate is about our own security, but there's very little talk about how do we bring peace in Ukraine. And some people say, oh, the Ukrainians will win the war, so let them just continue to, to sort of push Putin and his aggression out. I'm not so sure that's going to happen. At least it's not going to be easy. I think every effort should be made to try to bring peace because for every day there is more destruction, there is more killing, there are more people losing their lives. I think it's a terrible situation and I think we have not done enough. And what is happening here is also, of course, affecting businesses all around the world. There's companies from many places doing business with Russia, doing business in Russia, and this war, of course, also puts them in a difficult position. Many international players like IKEA from Sweden or McDonald's have pulled out of Russia. Others have decided to stay. What's your take? Well, I think momentarily, I think it's very good to, to leave the business and to discontinue what you're doing if you are a company. In the longer term perspective, I'm very much afraid of totally isolating Russia. It's a very big country. It's a big economy. We simply can't do that because then we would erect a new iron wall and nobody will be happy about that in the longer term. So we need to, to maintain a dialogue and remember that we are not in opposition to Russians in general. We are in opposition to, to the Kremlin and to Putin. And that's very important to remember. Another uh, part of the problem is, of course, that the Russian media have been brainwashing the Russian population for quite some time. So it's not easy to see how regime change could come. But uh, we have to believe in that. And then we have to believe in establishing cooperation again with Russia. We can't isolate them. Also, Greiner is doing business in Russia. And you have mentioned that we are not in opposition to the country itself or to its people, but to the government, to the current government. We have two factories, one in Vladimir, one in Noginsk, and also a small site in Kaliningrad. And we have not closed those factories because we mainly produce food packaging there, which is necessary for everyday life. Moreover, the people who work there, they have been our colleagues for years. 
and they have not started this war. So I have more than 500 colleagues who work there. How do you deal with that moral dilemma? Well, it's it's not an easy question. And um, I should not be the one to judge individually. What I think has been important is that some of the big multinational companies who basically sell stuff in uh, Russia and benefit from revenues there, uh, that they have made a point that they don't accept the war and they don't want to be part of it. But that doesn't mean that every type of activity or production should be closed. And as you rightly say, you have to think about the people who work in the factories. So um, I think it's a balancing act. It's a, as you said, it's a moral dilemma. And I'm happy that you don't produce anything that can be used <laughs> in the warfare. On the contrary, you are producing essentials. So um, I'm not the one to judge, but I think it's important to put pressure on Putin and his government. At the same time, we should maintain dialogue because we are not on war or we are not on, on, on in a conflict situation with the Russian people. It's the leadership of Russia that is responsible for what's happening. And we are going to, we have to put pressure on them. And then hopefully one day we can start a dialogue with, with ordinary people again. I mean, there is war, corruption, human rights abuses happening in many countries around the globe, also in Europe, of course. So what qualifies a country at all or a market to do business there? I mean, where do you draw the line? Exactly. And, and as you know, Europe, we have imposed sanctions, but we are still importing oil and gas and some precious metals. And I think the whole world is uh, in a, an increasingly difficult situation because exports of grain, not only from Russia, but also from Ukraine, have been very, very important in the past. Russia and Ukraine make up uh, 30, 35% of the wheat exports in the world. And all of a sudden that goes away. If that disappears, so to say, poor people in uh, Africa will suffer. And I saw yesterday that India has also decided not to export because they've had this heat spell and they are worried about their own food supplies. So there are many consequences of this conflict in the field of energy, in the field of foodstuffs, in the field of metals, in the field of fertilizers. I mean, this is a delicate situation and it also shows how vulnerable we are in this globalized world. The pandemic showed it in a different way, and this war shows it in, in another way. You have mentioned already that Europe or many other countries are dependent on Russian gas and oil. So, of course, this war has triggered lots of discussions around energy security in general. What's the effects of the war on the energy transition? Do you think it is a boost for renewable energy in some way? I hope so. And I think that the European Commission so far has tried to deal both with the threat of climate change and the whole war situation and not give the climate agenda less priority. I've heard a lot of people saying, no, 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 now we put 
that to rest the climate agenda. Now we concentrate on war and security. And of course, they are very intimately linked. So I think it's correct to do what the European Commission does, namely to try to reduce our dependence as soon as possible and rather accelerate the transformational transition, leaving behind as much as possible fossil fuels. But it, it will take some time. You have mentioned Putin and there's one thing that I'm very curious of, and that is that recent polls have shown that above 80% of the population in Russia is still supporting Putin. That's 12 points higher than in February before the war has started. And from a Western perspective, that is very hard to comprehend. How is that possible? First of all, you have to ask yourself, how are these opinion polls carried out? How much can we trust them? When people in Russia are being called upon to give their judgment, uh, do they feel they can do that without being harassed if they say, say, respond the, the negative way or, or negatively? So I, I wouldn't trust these opinion polls very much. But I also think we have to take into account that uh, Russian media now is very much controlled. All independent medias have been shot down, and it's the state-controlled media that conveys the messages about the war. And as you know, it's not even called a war, it's called a special operation. So, so I think uh, large parts of the population which are deprived of any other information, they have a tendency to maybe believe what their uh, ruler tells them. We should not also underestimate the fact that many of the older parts of the, the parts of the population who are 50 plus, they experienced hardship during the 1990s when the Soviet Union collapsed. It was a very difficult 10 years. There was this shock therapy on the advice of some American and UK economists and, and people really suffered. When Putin came on board, he somehow managed to bring the economy back in somewhat of a balance. So I think many people still look upon him as a stabilizer, as somebody who gave them back some, uh, if not dignity, at least some security. So this is a complex uh, issue, very complex issue. Freedom of speech and independent media, I think that's uh, two very important keywords. I'd like to get an advice from you. How do I actually know what is true and what is fake news? I mean, don't we all believe what we hear and what we read in newspapers, on the radio and social media? Of course. I mean, media is never 100% objective, of course, because any journalist, if you and I, if we were journalists, we would somehow be biased because we have, we have our belief system at the bottom, so to say. And that's why it's so important to, to not only listen to one media. Look at the US today when uh, 40, 50% of the population only listen to and follow Fox News. They are brainwashed the same way as, as the Russian population, of course. So you have to have diversity. I think that's number one. And that's what's missing today in Russia. And in particular, in a situation where I understand that tens of thousands of Russians have left. The intelligentsia, the, 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 the technical people, the educated people, those with independent mindsets, they understand they can survive, so they leave the country. So that means also that uh, the kind of people who could help the population in general to get different perspectives, 
they are also disappearing. So, so I think this is very, very um, serious, absolutely. I have recently attended a sustainability summit here in Vienna, and one of the speakers there made a statement that really stuck in my mind. He said, democracy is not a path that you build in one day. It is a path that needs to be renewed every day. Mm -hmm. How can we make sure that we don't forget that? I think it's a very good point. Uh, and I think each generation has to be taught the benefits of an open society, of human rights, of democracy, of free elections, etc., etc. It's incredibly important. And we have a tendency to uh, sort of forget about that and take everything for granted. And it cannot be taken for granted. And we can see now in Europe, in the US, that... Uh, large parts of the population are leaning more and more towards authoritarian thinking, which is, uh, of course, very, very scary, very scary. And of course, that is also very closely linked, having a democratic system to having sustainable development and to standing in for values and beliefs that benefit our planet, benefit the environment. And that was actually what I wanted to discuss with you mm. uh, in the beginning, because you have a lot of knowledge in sustainability. And for example, in 2012, you have published together with Johann Rockström, one of the most famous climate scientists out there, a book called Bankrupting Nature. And I'm just wondering, have we bankrupted nature from your perspective? We are in the process of doing that, unfortunately, because we are overusing or overutilizing natural systems all over the world. Where do we talk about forests? farmland or soils, freshwater resources, and oceans. And we are depleting or we are losing biodiversity as we speak. So yes, we are on a, on a collision course with nature. And, um, you know, Johan Rockström, together with uh, a group of scientists already in 2009, tried to define the limits of the planet and the limits in terms of how human society should be organized in order not to overuse the planet and risk destroying the natural system. They defined nine planetary boundaries. And when they published the first report, they said we are risking to trespass or cross four planetary boundaries. I talked to you on yesterday And about two months ago, just before the conference in Nairobi, the assessment was made by this group of scientists that the fifth planetary boundary had been crossed, namely chemicals, chemical pollution. And now, last week, there was a report basically claiming that the sixth planetary boundary, freshwater use, was also crossed. So, so we are in very dangerous territory, and we have to... We cannot stop using nature, but we have to use nature in a different way. And it's very much linked to materials and material extraction. It's used to consumption. It's used to us buying stuff all the time. That's what's driving everything. And I'm on the, I'm one of the members of something called the International Resource Panel. We did a study already three years ago in 2019 called the Global Resources Outlook. And we, our est estimate was that material use have tripled since the 1970. 
And when we talk about materials, we talk about fossil fuels, we talk about biomass and food, we talk about minerals and metals. And if we continue to grow the economies the way they have been growing over the last 50 years, we will double material use again before 2050 or 2055. And the result will be more carbon emissions and more ecosystem degradation and biodiversity loss. So our conclusion is, it's all about stuff. It's not only about energy, it's all about stuff. And we need to do something about it. We need to consume differently and we need to curb overconsumption uh, among rich people because it's very much linked to purchasing power. Anders, we have touched upon so many topics during this interview. We have touched upon war, democracy, energy security, all of these things. And for me, that shows how interconnected and how complex our world is. How do we deal with that kind of complexity? You know, I was in Poland some years ago, launching another book I written with Ernst von Weizsäcker, the German scientist called Come On. And we had a big, big discussion at one of the universities in Warsaw. And there was an advisor to the president of Poland and scientific advisor. And we, when we touched upon complexity, he said that ordinary people cannot deal with complexity. We have to stop complexity. Uh, and he was alluding then to, you know, exponential technologies, artificial intelligence. We have to put a stop to all these technologies because everything becomes so complex. And I turned to him and I said, I think you are very unrealistic, sir. There's no way we can stop technology development. We can probably guide technology development, but we can't stop it. We can't put the lid on development. Why don't you try education? Uh, help people understand. We have to live with complexity and we have to understand complexity and we have to design our systems so we can live with it. And this interconnectedness has, of course, to do very much with the fact that we are organized vertically in silos. There are different ministries. They hardly talk to each other and they try to deal with their problems. But most of the problems we are facing, you need advice from different disciplines. You need to deal with a systemic approach rather than a vertical approach. So, so this is, this is difficult, but it's doable. But we have to rethink institutions. We have to rethink education. We have to rethink how science is organized. Rethinking systems and rethinking structures. That's also what we are trying to do here at Greiner. We're trying our best to transform our business to become a circular, a sustainable business. And I'm wondering from all of your years of experience in politics, in civil society, is there one or two learnings that you would like to share with us, with our colleagues, our managers here at Greiner, who have the chance to make a real difference in their business? Well, I, I think the first advice is to leave behind this vertical perspective and understand that, that the world is complex, that everything is linked to everything. And that if you want to deal with climate change, you have to deal with biodiversity loss and ecosystem degradation as well, because they are very much interlinked. And if you choose certain solutions regard to climate mitigation, you may jeopardize 
biodiversity or you may make life more difficult for ecosystems. So it's very important to have the total picture and be aware of these interconnectedness. So that's the first thing. And very often when you take a systemic view, you end up with solutions that are win, win, win. That you can kill many flies <laughs> at the same time. Anders, do you agree with me? Staying optimistic is important. Are you optimistic yourself? Not always. I have my very dark days. During this warfare in Ukraine, I've had many dark days. Um, but of course, optimism is the only possible attitude. Very often when I'm asked whether I'm an optimist or pessimist, I say, I respond, I'm a possibilist because I see many opportunities out there. We have many new technologies that could help us solve many of the problems that we have created. What we have so far not understood, I think, is that quality of life goes beyond buying stuff. It's not about material consumption. It's about so many other things. And I think as long as we continue to measure progress in society by production growth, GDP, we will miss the whole dimension of what quality of life is. And that's why I'm very attracted by five countries so far, New Zealand, Finland, Iceland, Wales, and Scotland, who have started to work together as the Wellbeing Economy Alliance. And they have taken on their the task to really focus more on well-being indicators as compared to the conventional GDP growth. They've only been active in doing this for a couple of years, so we don't have much evidence yet, but that's the right way to go. And we can only do it together. I mean, we have to work together. And that's why the war now is such a tragedy, because we cannot move in the right direction. If the Western world has one agenda, Mr. Putin has a totally different agenda, and the Chinese have a third agenda. We must work together. And that's why the war is, of course, a, a serious threat to climate change and to everything that has to do with environment protection, ecosystem protection. Anders, usually I'm inviting my interview guests to do a short word wrap with me in the end of the episode. But in this case, I think we have touched upon such serious issues and uh, so important issues. And now you have mentioned that working together is the most important thing. So I just want to ask you, I have colleagues in Russia. I also have Ukrainian colleagues. We have many Ukrainian colleagues working in our plants in Poland, the Czech Republic, Romania. Do you have a message for all of us, for all of them? Well, I mean, it, it is very much about togetherness because we need to leave aside as much as possible tensions and issues of conflict and start focusing on the fact that we have to protect this little planet so that we can sustain life in a decent way, not only for us, but for our children and their children. The problem today is that the whole economy is so short-term oriented and we don't value the future the way we should. We value today. So we have to work together to reform the economy, whether we live in Sweden, in Romania, or even in Russia. It will take time, 
But if we are focused on that, we can build on good examples in different countries. Anders, thank you so much for taking your time today. That was a very special conversation for me. I thank you. And thank you everybody for listening. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast. Make sure to take care of each other and have a lovely day. Thank you so much. Griner Talks, a Griner podcast. Subscribe now. Thank you.